Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 4, 1 through 14. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let their sin, let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must rep- return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to, to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. Before I jump into where we're headed, uh, I do want to do something uh, really great this morning, and I'm going to call the men forward who are stepping into our elder development process, who have officially been invited in. So men, come forward. You can just come right down here in the front. We have a lot going on today, uh, but we want to, to honor these men. Now, if you don't know, at Sacred City and biblically, an elder is a pastor, and a pastor is an elder. I know some churches use those for different offices. We do not. If we say we're an elder, it means we're a pastor. You're a pastor, you're an elder. And the local church is meant to be led by a plurality of elders. That means I am the lead pastor, but I, when we vote on things, I have one vote with, all, with the other elders. And so the elders operate as a, a functioning plurality. And the larger our church gets, the more men we need to carry the weight and responsibility of eldership. But elders are not made in a day. Elders are not made in a year. Elders, most elders aren't even made in a decade. It takes a, a while to have the, the strength of biblical character to have an understanding of God's word so that you can teach it clearly, to understand it. And it takes uh, some time to know, are you compatible with our church, with our philosophy of ministry? And all of these men have been with us for a a while, uh, some of them from the very beginning of Sacred City Church. All of these men have the necessary character to step into 
this process right now. And now they're going to go through a season of testing and training to make sure that they are competent in the Word of God and that they have the skills necessary to shepherd God's people God's way. That is the plan. So all of these men feel God's call on their life. They've uh, put themselves forward and, and want to step into this process. Now, if you want to know what that process looks like, we've got a packet at the welcome area back there. You can look at it. It's, it's pretty extensive. Lots of reading. And here's what I want you to know. <laughs> these men are, uh, you know, they, they have, I don't know of any of them that have just inherited millions from their parents and they're just sitting at home and, and you know, drinking Mai Tais on the beach, right? These men are fathers. They are business owners. They are employees. They're working hard. They're busy. And they are, because God is calling them to, stepping in to a, a, a weight of responsibility that most people are not even aware of, all right? I don't, the elders are pushing me on this. I don't like talking about myself very often, okay? And the elders are telling me I need to do it more often. So just this past week, I, had a, I was at a conference, and, and if you don't know, I, I lead this church, but I also lead Acts 29, Iowa. The, I, and one of my best friends and pastors in Iowa, his 44-year-old wife, was killed this week. And he's a church planner, and he's got a young church and a young family, and I had to make the phone calls. I had to call all my Acts 29 Iowa guys. I had to call all my other church planners, inform them of this while at this conference, while planning for a sermon, while preaching, while preparing the funerals on Monday. On top of, I got five kids, right? It's a weight of responsibility for all of us. These men up here, I'm going to pray for Josh. Josh specifically, Josh's daughter is had a heart transplant, and she's got a biopsy up in Chicago. They've been going back and forth to Chicago for weeks now, and we want to pray for him and pray for his daughter. This, this is a great, that's a huge weight of responsibility as a father, and on top of that, he feels like he wants to be a father in the church, right? This is a huge gift to us as a church and a huge responsibility. Kevin right here, Kevin has basically adopted four kids, in the, or let's say three, in the past two years, okay? Three in the past two years, another one in the past five or six or whatever, I, something like that, right? Details aren't my thing. So, right? And he's, and his, his son had an, he was here last week serving. When I got here, it was my week off. I got here early because I was going to do Joshua's announcement. And, I, and his, son, his son was being rushed to Iowa City, having an emergency surgery because his appendix burst. And I said, why are you here? He said, I'm doing liturgy. I said, give me the paper. Get to Iowa City. And that's why I did liturgy in the first service last week. Okay? So these men are willing to lay their life down, not only for their families, but also for this church. And that is a, a responsibility they're taking on, and it is a sacrifice that we as the church should honor. But what we want to do this morning is we want to consecrate them to the Lord. We want to hand them over to the Lord. We want to dedicate them to the Lord. And we don't know how long this process is going to be. It could be a year. It could be two. It could be three. Could, we don't know. We don't know. But we're, 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 they're stepping into this process, and we're fish, officially honoring them as such, and we're setting them apart for the Lord, all right? So we want to do that this morning. I'm going to pray. Please pray for them with me. Father God, I thank you for all of these men. I thank you for the dedication that they have to you, to your word, to their family, first and foremost, Father, that they would not neglect their relationship with you, their, their, their understanding of your word, and their relationship with their family. But on top of those already great responsibilities, Father God, they're stepping into a responsibility to your church. They're, they're wanting to test this calling to see, am I called to lead in the church? Lord, would you bless this time? Would you make it fruitful? Would you deepen their love for you, deepen their love for their wife, deepen their love for your, your, their love for your word, and deepen their love for your church? 
that this is your bride that you bled for, and I thank you for these men who are willing to come alongside the other elders, and they're willing to bleed for your bride as well. I, I, I consecrate them before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me go ahead and, and you can see him up there. So Alex Tate right here, Alec Epkis on the end down there, Kevin Noer right here. We got Josh Gallier right there, Alex Groutman on the far end. We got J Jimmy Daling with the cowboy hat on in the picture right there. We got Jarek. Where's Jarek? Jarek's right here. And we got Eric right here. So these are uh, elders in training, all right? They're candidates for the eldership process. Let them, keep them in your prayers. Let them know that you're thankful for them and as we continue this process together, all right? So let's, let's give a round of applause to God and to his glory. Thank you, man. Thank you. Okay. Now we need a miracle. <laughs> Open up your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, please. 9.18. Okay. If you want to know this whole sermon, you should probably listen to the second sermon because the second sermon, I have no time restraints. This one, I have time restraints, okay? So I'm going to skip part of my introduction and just say, we're preaching through the book of Nehemiah, and it's a historical book of the Old Testament, and even though this book was written 2,500 years ago, it is incredibly relevant to us today. Solomon once said that there is nothing new under the sun, and today... Our reading of Nehemiah 4 is a testimony to that reality. The world that we are living in is a spiritual and physical war zone. Hear me. The world that we are living in is a spiritual and physical war zone. Now, most of the world knows this. Most of the civilizations in the history of the world have known this. But it seems like many of us, maybe all of us, have forgotten this truth. Cotton Mather, a 17th and 18th century American Puritan, wrote around 1700 that, quote, religion, Christianity, begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. What he meant by this was Christianity brought prosperity with it. Now, why did that happen? You, history is full of examples, but if you've ever heard of the Protestant work ethic, Christian morality, Christian laws, the inalienable rights of human beings, all of these came from Christianity and nowhere else. The virtues of justice, temperance, courage, wisdom, when widely accepted and widely applied by a people, the environment is ripe for people to prosper. And that is exactly what happened in our society. The problem like all of the scriptures attest to, is that when prosperity is widespread, people forget where it comes from. They forget God and begin to worship their own comfort and prosperity. They neglect the creator for his creation, and when that happens, again, their faith flounders and society begins to crumble. We are in this precarious situation today. I don't have to got time to go into all the examples I could name. We have prospered. God has blessed us. I would even venture to say that since we are such a young church, most of us in this church are probably making more money than we were 10 years ago. Most of us are probably living in a nicer house. 
Some of us remember not very long ago thinking, man, it would be nice to fill up my gas tank all the way. Can you imagine just coming up to the gas tank and just not even checking your account, just filling it up? I remember days like that. Not putting $5 in, hoping it lasts till it's payday. Here's my point. As the Lord prospers us, it is very easy to forget that we are in a war. We can even get really surprised when a fight breaks out. How do you feel when a fight breaks out at a hockey game? <laughs> this is what I came for. All right. How do you feel when a fight breaks out on the golf course? Many of you are like, well, that's a change of things. All right, let's go. I'd like to see what would happen here. No, no, here, here's my point. Our world and our life in the world is more like a hockey game than a golf course, than a round of golf. God has called us to build our lives on the foundation of his word, He's called us to build our families, our churches, our businesses, our schools, our governments on his word because Jesus is the king of the nations. And what Nehemiah teaches us today is that all of that work that we're called to do is going to be done in a war zone with bullets flying. Now, sometimes they're physical, they're always spiritual. They're philosophical. Sometimes it's ideas, but bullets flying. And if we are going to succeed, we have to be a people with a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. In other words, we must reject comfort and the lies of prosperity and embrace the pain that leads to progress. Proverbs 13, tells us that, quote, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. If we want to leave our kids and our grandkids an inheritance, and yes, I mean physical wealth, but I also mean the inheritance of a healthy church community, the inheritance of an of a actual a church building in our city, a strategic base for gospel ministry to the next generation and to our city. And also, I mean, an inheritance of our city that is better than the way we found it. If we're going to leave an inheritance, a legacy to our children, it's going to take a lot of hard work and pain from us. We can't just build up enough, enough wealth, enough um, institutions to make our life happy and then re retire and run off into the sunset. No, no, no. We need to continue to sacrifice, continue to embrace the, embrace the pain that leads to progress for our children and grandchildren's sake so that we can build something for them that will last. And we're going to have to do all of this in the midst of a culture that is set against us, that is set against our God. And they want to see us fail. That's where we're headed this morning. Let me pray for us. Father God, we dedicate ourselves to you. 
We come under your word. We are not over your word. Your word critiques us. We cannot critique your word. I ask that you would help us humble ourselves, listen to your word, receive it with faith, and obey it as we leave here today. God, I am a sinner. I am prone to error in my own flesh. And so I ask that you would hide me behind your word, that you would guard my mind and guard my lips, that I would only speak what is from you and only speak what is true, and that you would also guard the ears of your people, that your your people would hear your word and your voice and not mine. I pray that all of this would be done for your glory and not ours and for our ultimate good and joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, quick recap. What is Nehemiah all about? I know that we got some visitors here. Nehemiah is all about this. A, a man was working for a pagan king and he was in exile in, in Persia because Nebuchadnezzar had came in and destroyed the people of Israel and Jerusalem and, and, and carried him off into Babylonian exile, okay? Nehemiah rose to the position of a cupbearer, <coughs> cup the right-hand man to the king, and then he hears about what's going on in Jerusalem. His brothers arrive from Jerusalem and say it's not going well. The walls are all torn down. What did that mean? That mean there was no protection. There was no safety. Ezra had went back 20 years before, and he had built the church community. He had rebuilt the temple. So there was a church, but there was no functioning city, and there was no protective walls around the city. So this governing authority from Persia realized God's people are at great risk. And so what he does is he, he's grieved. God gives him a heart for the city, and he prays for three to four months, and then he goes before the king, and he asks, king, here's what I want from you. Would you send me back to rebuild the walls? God gives him favor. The hand of the Lord is on him. The king says, sure, go ahead and do it. Now, we have, this is testified by outside historical archaeological sources that I've talked about before. I don't have time to go into it today, but you can go back and listen to that. The king gives him his blessing, sends him back on that uh, three-month-long journey. He gets back there with the king's men, with the king's army. He sets up shop. He starts surveying the land to check out how big of a project this is. The wall is torn down everywhere. And what does it mean, the wall? We, this is not like a little wooden fence outside your gates, okay? This is stone upon stone, thousand-pound stones stacked on top of each other. When Nebuchadnezzar wanted to, re, he wanted to ensure that Jerusalem would never be rebuilt, he burnt the city to the ground and then pulled the stones off with horses and chariots. And these stones, because Jerusalem was, is built upon very steep cliffs, many of these stones just tumbled down the mountain and lay at the bottom, right? And so there was... Rob told us last week, you know, they hadn't quite figured out the, the John Deere excavators yet. And so this was a major issue, okay? This was a major issue and a major problem. But Nehemiah and God's people get back to work, rebuilding the city and obeying God. That's what's going on. Well, last week in chapter 3, at first glance, that chapter is one of those chapters you just skim right over, right? It's one of those chapters that you give the assistant pastor to preach, right? It's just a list of names, right? Just a list of names. Uh, actually, no, I'm not going to get into that. So I'm just joking. But what Rob taught us last week was it's so much more than that. And what we saw last week was that everyone matters here. And no matter what your profession or trade was, everyone who was on God's team got drafted into the mission to rebuild the wall. It was priority one, all hands on deck. It didn't matter, we saw this last week, if you were the high priest, I would have loved to have seen that, the high priest trying to lift a stone, right? Uh, the noblemen, 
The goldsmiths, the merchants, the perfumers, even the backup priests had to get their hands dirty. And they were all shoulder to shoulder, focused on the mission of God together. They knew that this work was sacred and it was only going to get done. It wasn't going to get done by Nehemiah. It wasn't going to get done just by the high priest. It was only going to get done if they were all willing to work together. Listen, this is what gospel ministry is supposed to look like. All of us shoulder to shoulder, carrying the burdens, pushing the mission of God forward. But there was one exception. The Tekoites, the Tekoite nobles, Nehemiah tells us that they refused, quote, to stoop to serve the Lord. These men were too proud to be bothered by the rough, labor-intensive, blue-collar work of building the wall. These guys were too busy and important to be bothered by the mission of God. I actually like the way the city is. Who cares? We don't really need a wall. I'm actually prospering. Me and my family are fine. I'm not going to stoop to serve the Lord. I'm not going to get involved in this project. I got big, fast, important, famous things to do. No thanks. They were too self-important, too absorbed in their own careers to take a moment to stoop to serve the Lord. Now, these guys are the guys we do not want to be like. Let me just say, God is calling us as a church to raise a lot of money over the next few years, probably around $2 million when all is said and done, to buy a property in Davenport that will serve as a strategic base for reaching the next generation and our community for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is only going to happen if we all stoop to serve the Lord. We're all going to have a part to play in his mission. We're asking everyone right now to begin to pray, to begin to fast, and to begin to think about giving towards this work in the near future. So last week we saw that everyone but these Tekoite nobles were in unity and working on the wall. Things were going well and were, things were moving forward. Praise God for that. They're building the wall. They're getting to work. But remember, one of the themes of this book is that the wise man keeps his head on a swivel. Being naive is not a fruit of the Spirit. We are in a war, and wars have real enemies, and enemies want to stop what God is doing, and that's exactly what we see now in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read together. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and, he, and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Now remember, Sanballat, here he is back again, okay? This guy is going to be the thorn in Nehemiah's side. He is, a, he is the governor of Samaria. Remember, he got the Arabs and he got the Ammonites around the, the people that are surrounding uh, the people of God, Jerusalem and Judah, he got three of them together to try to stop the work of God. Now here he comes, he shows back up again, and he's even more angry. Now listen, this isn't just Joe Schmo. This is a governor of Samaria. Now, Nehemiah has a, a letter from the king that allows him to build. So there's, in one sense, there's nothing Nehemiah can do. And so that, makes, that infuriates him. He can't stop the work. So what's he going to do? He's going to start lashing out with his mouth. He's going to start condemning them, and he's going to start making fun of them, and he's going to try to 
discourage them. Now, why is he enraged? It says he's enraged. Well, he's a powerful man who does not want God's people to gain a foothold in the region. And now we see here in in verse 1 and verse 2, he's actually brought his army with him to intimidate God's people into stopping the work of rebuilding the wall. So now this guy, enemy number one, shows up with an army and starts making fun of God's people. Look at verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army, that's his army, of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing making fun of them? Will they restore it for themselves? Are they real? You guys, you guys, can you imagine what it looks like to have a perfumer up building a wall? Can we just be honest, right? That guy's probably not a tradesman that we trust, right? Laying brick, right? They're like, ah, nice try. Johnny, get over there and help him out, right? Nice try. They're building it, but this is a ragtag crew, right? This is a ragtag crew here, and so they're making fun of them. Keep reading. Will they sacrifice? Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Oh, are you going to pray about it? Oh, is God going to help you? Oh, will you ask God to help you build the wall? Let's see if your God can really do anything. Making fun. Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? You're really going to go down the mountain? You're going to carry them up? Perfumer Joe, he's going to do that? Really? Let's see. Making fun of him. Now, what's going on here? They can't attack them physically, so they're attacking their morale. They're attacking their will to work. Remember, we saw last week, they had a will to work. They wanted to get after it. God is calling them to do something that can only be accomplished by faith, and these enemies are trying to attack that faith. They're trying to tell them, you're trying to do something that is physically impossible. There's no way you're going to be able to do it. Your God isn't going to help you. Now, I love what Nehemiah does. Actually, let's, let's go into verse 3 here. Tobiah, that's the other, the other guy, the, the other enemy, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said... Guess what they are building? If a fox goes up on it, (laughs) he will break down their stone wall. Again, more than likely, that's the perfumer section, all right? That one's not solid. Don't go over there, right? Don't go in there. Keep reading. Verse 4, how does Nehemiah respond to these accusations? Again, attacking their will to work, attacking their morale, attacking their faith because they can't attack them physically. He says this, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. They hate us. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Nehemiah is not playing games here. Nehemiah just says, take what they're saying and ricochet it back on them. They want our destruction, destroy them, Lord. They want to stop us, stop them. That's what he's saying. Give them what they're, what they're wanting to give us. He counters their negative words with weird words of faith, but also with prayers 
this is not a silent prayer. We've seen Nehemiah pray often in this book. And sometimes it just said, Nehemiah prayed. Before he went to the king, Nehemiah prayed. That was probably one of those, Lord Jesus, help me, right? And stepped into it. But now we see what he prayed. Why? Because these accusations are coming publicly. It's discouraging the people from working. And so now he's going to encourage them through his faith-filled prayer to God. He's not scared of these people. He's not scared. He's not going to back down. He says, God, give them what they're wanting to give us. Verse 5. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. What's he saying here is, God, you are the only one who can forgive sins. And they are coming against you. They're hating you, they're hating your people, and they're trying to stop your plans. And so what does that mean? Let them get what they deserve. Don't blot their sins out. Don't forgive their sins. Don't give them mercy because they're against you. Refuses to back down. Why? Look at the last one. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. He says, this ain't about us. This is about you. They're against you. So God, you respond to them. Verse 6. I love it. So we built the wall. Nehemiah refused to be discouraged. He kept working. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So this discouragement is coming in, and, and Nehemiah is fighting it with faith, and fighting with faith-fueled prayers, and he's saying, keep your eyes on God, and just keep, keep at it, keep working. When they experienced opposition, what did they do? They kept working. Listen, it's a hockey game. Fights happen. Don't be surprised when you get punched in the face. The people had a mind to work. They kept the faith. Do we have a mind to work? Are we ready to put our hands to the plow for Jesus and put down real physical roots here in the Quad Cities? I have to be honest. I have not been. I have been lazy and too comfortable here at the Junior Theater. I did not want to do, I've done everything I could not to do, the work of creating a capital campaign and a building campaign. It's one of the things I've dreaded the most as a pastor. I hated them when I was in the pews just there because I usually I was too young and poor to really do anything about it. So the pastor was just up here with a big thermometer asking for money all the time. I was like, I'll never be that guy. Here I am. No thermometer yet, though. It's probably coming, let's just say. It's the way the Lord wants to humble me. All right? I've just been praying silently in my prayer closet that God would just either give us a building or give us a couple million dollars. He said, one guy, just come in one week, you know, one week. Multi-millionaires here and just go ahead and do it. That'd be nice. But I'm honest with you. I don't think I have had a mind to do this work until studying the book of Nehemiah. And now I feel that God has given me the faith to lead us out into this impossible task, to our wall that he's asking us to build.
verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the, go away, this is what you should be hearing when you read this. What is wrong with these dudes? Why won't they lay off? Don't they know they're fighting against God? Don't they know they're going against God's work in the world? What is wrong with these fools? Fools say in their heart, there is no God. They are set against him. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, uh uh-oh, look at this, and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, they got more, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So now these people are going and they're getting more pagans to join in their fight against the people of God. Opposition is mounting outside the gates, let's say. And anger is stirring. Anxiety is stirring. These people are emotionally reacting. They have enemies that are jeering at them and saying all kind of ugly things at them and wanting to destroy them. As the work of God continues to pick up steam and brick is laid upon brick and the wall gets a little bit higher, so does the opposition. What God builds, Satan wants to destroy. Verse 8. And they all plotted together to come, and look, to come and fight against Jerusalem and to what? Cause confusion in it. What is the enemy trying to do? To fight against them and cause confusion. This is physical and psychological warfare. They want to scare them. They want to play off of their anxiety and fears and cause them to quit building. This is the tactic in almost every war. Physical and psychological warfare. Can we discourage them enough they'll just take their stuff and go home? Go go back to where you came from. How are these people, how are these, let's just call them Christians now, how are these Christians going to respond to these threats? Verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Here is the Christian position. Please see this. We prayed and we set a guard. What does that mean? That means we prayed about it. We want spiritual protection from God, but we also made preparations, physical preparations to protect the work of God and the people of God. See, you see this two-pronged approach here to the enemy's attack. First prayer, we must keep the faith. We must trust God and not fear. Second, let's set a physical guard as protection against this real-life threat. In the next few verses, Nehemiah is going to show us some of the rumors that were spreading, some of the lies that were circling, some of the psychological warfare tactics that had been played that were gaining a foothold in the Jerusalem community. Look at verse 10. In Judah, okay, that's the region. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we won't be able to rebuild the wall. 
The job's too tough. Did you see the perfumer? He only worked three hours yesterday. He got blisters. I'm never going to do it. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now, in one sense, this is a blind threat, right? This doesn't have any, doesn't have any teeth to it. Why? Nehemiah is the only one that knows this, really, because the king's given him his blessing. So they can't actually come against them, but they're spreading the rumor. Any day now, we're going to crush you. Any day, we're coming in to destroy you. Verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them, so not the ones necessarily working, but the Jews that lived in the region, came from all directions and said to us ten times, ten times, ten times, over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and maybe that was ten, I don't know, it's close. Ten times they said this, you must return to us. Come back. These were people who should be helping them build the wall in the work. But instead, they were too afraid to look foolish. They were too afraid of being attacked. What if we fail? We're going to look like idiots. So they sat on the sidelines and tried to get the others to do nothing. Come back to us. See, the enemies let, it, let them know in no uncertain terms. Any moment we want, we'll come in there and take everything from you. But the Jews, their own people came to them and tried to get them to stop building 10 times. They were persistent over and over and over saying, just quit, come back, return with us, stop this crazy mission and go back to being normal like us. Accept the way the city is. Just accept it. Don't believe God for it. Don't believe God that he wants to save people. Don't believe God that he wants to build something new and fresh in this city. Don't believe them. Go back to normal. Now, can I just say something very obvious? This is not the ideal circumstances for accomplishing this massive of a project. I know what I'd be saying. We got a wall to build. And all of this gossip and all of this rumor and all of these threats, I'd be like, God, would you shut them up? We got enraged enemies on the outside threatening their life making fun of their every move. And listen, we have passive, cowardly allies on the inside telling them to just quit and go back to the way things used to be. The project, the mission, the people stand on a narrow's edge here. Precipice on the right, precipice on the left. Their morale is greatly at risk. 
Their faith is being tested. Punches are flying in the hockey game. Do I really want to? That's just what you find out. Do I really want to play this game? So what does Nehemiah do? I'm going to tell you. We've been talking about this for months, this whole past year, in our Sacred City leadership development. I'm just going to say a big word here that we have been talking about. Nehemiah is a great example of a well-differentiated leader. He remains connected to God, stalwart in his faith, unmovable by the people's opinions, unmovable by fear and anxiety, and he makes the wise decision. He, he's a good leader here, all right? And I'm, I'm going to show you what he does. He is not deterred, right? He's strong and he's decisive. And when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Here's here's how I would say, this is what Nehemiah does in, 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 in verse 14. In my words, Nehemiah says, regulators, mount up. That's what he says in verse 14. Here we go. It was a, no, okay. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials, and to the, re- oh, I'm sorry, did I skip 13? I did skip 13, so I got to go back to 13. Gosh, I got to go back to 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, so here's the idea. The wall is being built, but there's some low spots, some guys that aren't keeping up, right? There's some low spots. Those low spots are now threat number one. So what he's going to do is he's going to station people. Well, let's keep reading. I stationed the people by their clans, those that they were united by blood, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I'll say, remember when we said we pray and we prepare, right? He's praying about it, God protect us, but he's not sitting on his hands and just letting an active shooter come in and said, well, we prayed about it. So let me just say, he's praying and he's arming the good guys. That's what he's doing here, all right? Verse 14. And I looked and arose, he's stepping up, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, here's his speech, do not be afraid of them. That's the first thing he says. Fear not. Now, this is what he's doing. We're going to see it later in this verse. As he's stationing his, these people in these gaps in the wall, he's stationing them by clans, by their family, in front of their homes, in front of their brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and wives, and he says to them, when well, he's got them stationed there, don't be afraid. Now, I can't move past this too quickly. Why? Because did you know this is the number one most common command in all of the Bible? God's word says this to us more than anything else. It says, do not be afraid. Fear not. Should that tell us something about the world we are living in? I've never told anybody headed to the golf course. Don't be afraid, buddy. A hockey game? Yes. Should that tell us something about the mission that God has called us to? Number one command, don't be afraid. 
See, your number one temptation in life will be fear. You will be tempted to fear man. You will be tempted to fear loss. You will be tempted to fear looking stupid. You will be tempted to fear being lonely. You will be tempted to fear risk. You will be tempted to fear failure. And of course, we're all tempted to fear death. And what does God say to us? He says, do not be afraid. Jesus said specifically, I have overcome the world. Fear not, little flock. Nehemiah goes on. Look what else he says. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Oh, but he adds to it. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Now, the King James Version renders that. Remember the Lord who is great and terrible. Here's the key. If you are a Christian... It means Jesus Christ died for you, Jesus Christ lived for you, died for you, rose for you, filled you with the Spirit, forgave all of your sins. The Holy Spirit is in you. What does that mean if you're a Christian? God is with you. And God is not weak. God is not afraid. God is not in doubt. God is mighty to save. He is great and terrible, and his plans cannot be thwarted. Do you remember what God said to Joshua before he entered the promised land? He said, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Here's the point. What you're stepping into is a terribly frightful, scary situation. That's not going to change. It's a fight. But here's what's going to change. God, the ultimate fighter, is with you. The terrible and awesome and mighty one is with you. But see, this great calling here. Look, let's finish the text here. It says this. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. What should our response be? And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. It's not a calling just to believe the Bible that God is with you and then go hit the golf course. Or enjoy a nice quiet time with the Lord. No, he says, do not be afraid. Remember who God is and that he is with you. And then get in the fight. Now right here we do see it's defensive. They're being attacked. But they're willing to fight. Look how Nehemiah makes this personal for each of them. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now, right now, we're not in a physical fight, but we are in a spiritual fight. And I'm asking the men and women of our church to fight for your children. Fight for your wives. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your neighbors. Get in the fight. G.K. Chesterton once said, the true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. 
What's behind us? Our families, our children, our homes, our churches, our schools, our society. God is calling us to fight. God is calling us to raise money and buy a church building so that good gospel ministry will continue as a light to our city for the generations to come. We are planting a seed now that we want to harvest fruit from in a decade. We want it to be a tree in a decade in 20 years that will have, have fruit on it. You know, it's been said, the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. Second best time is right now. It's time to plant a tree. Let me pray for us. God, you are good and you are great and you are terrible and you are awesome and you are gracious. We don't deserve any of this. We're only here because you've called us by your mercy and your grace. But we come together this morning as Christians to set our mind and our hearts to do the work, to fight the fights, to fight the battles that you've called us to fight. And now we come to your table to be reminded of the unity we have with one another and the forgiveness we have from you. And so we take the bread and we break it. This is your body that was broken for us. Just like this one loaf will be broken up to, to feed all of us, we all here are united by faith to one head, Jesus Christ, and we take the cup that it is his blood that was shed for us for the remission of our sins, Father. And we know this, your blood is the only thing that forgives the sinner. And we want to offer that to a world. We want to offer that to our city. We want to offer that to anyone who will take it. There are people here this morning who have never accepted Christ in their heart. Don't come and take the elements. Take Christ by faith. He died for you to forgive you of all your sins and unite you with the Father. Father, would you help us eat this meal in faith? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.